Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. I'm here with Steven Sigal, and I will ask you, Steven, to introduce yourselves because you do so many things. I am Steven Sigal, and I'm a professor of Slavic and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin in the United States. I wrote three books about critical geography and cartography, the history of Ukraine, Eastern Europe, Central Europe, Imperial Russia, the history of map making. I've been involved with this project called the February 24th Archive. The February 24th Archive is, first of all, a war archive. As we know, the war did not begin February 24th, 2022. I trace it back to February 2014, and really before that, into larger revolutionary moments in Ukrainian history and and through a longer course of Ukrainian history independent of Russia. My simple goals have really been to uh, build a primary source archive and also to amplify Ukrainian voices, ensuring that there's a constant emphasis even around the clock on Ukrainian voices and Ukrainian agency and the ability of, of Ukrainians in sovereign, independent Ukraine with a civil society to make decisions on a country of 40 three to 45 million people, including 7 million, let's say, internally displaced people. So I did my PhD at Brown University and a postdoc at Harvard, where I had the good fortune to become acquainted with some of the leading Ukrainian uh, voices and scholars, including people like Yaroslav Hritsak, who's in Lviv, Serhii Plohi, who's now the Hrushevsky Chair of Ukrainian History at Harvard, uh, and Timothy Snyder as well, who uh, obviously is is well known for his social media voice in a lot of different networks. The archive right now, as I uh, have it, has about 25 to 30 million impressions per month. It's been a way for me constantly to get more voices, to, to amplify the Ukrainian language, culture, politics ahead of a lot of the think tank uh, people who had been doing so much West splaining at the beginning of the war. And the final thing I'd mention about this Twitter uh, activity is is really that I've been a practitioner in post-colonial studies and decolonial and anti-colonial networks really since the 1990s. Let's talk about <laughs> your books a bit. Could you explain how Bogdan, and I hope I pronounced it right, Krausiv's map collection that you wrote about, particularly from the 19th and 20th centuries, contributes to understanding Ukraine's history and, importantly, national identity. Also, can you share an example from your research, something compelling case study in mapping Europe's borderlands that would demonstrate the significant impact of cartography on state building and identity formation in East uh, Central European borderlands and in Ukraine. Kravtsev was a neoclassical poet who wrote in Ukrainian in the 1920s and 1930s. He lived in interwar Poland, so he was a Ukrainian minority in interwar Poland. And as an activist, uh, he was also a translator from German. So he translated Rainier Maria Rilke and held a reputation before he ever had to flee because he and his family fled 
1939 when the Nazis and Soviets invaded Lviv Lemberg. So Kravtsev became a really important figure for me, and he is a journalist in the North American diaspora. That's what he's best known for. In the 1950s, he began in Philadelphia, in New York, in Boston, and some other places, collecting anything that said Ukraine, the maps. It was really under erasure in the Soviet period. The Soviet-Ukrainian idea, this, you know, after the death of Stalin, 1954, there was a commemoration for Shevchenko. And Ukrainians who were in the immigration or in the diaspora in circles in North America were very interested in cartography and geography and and the mapping of Ukraine as an independent country and an independent history with a separate history of independence. Kravtsev collected almost 900 maps, and that book became Ukraine Under Western Eyes, which I was commissioned with great fortune to write by Harvard after the Orange Revolution of 2004. The centerpiece for this is, was actually uh, the maps of Beauplan. So Guillaume Levasseur sur de Beauplan, who was a French hydrographer who worked for the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and the kings and queens of Poland-Lithuania in the 17th century, looking for settlements eastward in Ukraine in the early modern period. And in some of those maps of Beauplan, had the name Ukraina, the, the name of the country there. What, what became interesting to me as a historian was to place Ukraine in the history of cartography. And that included trade networks, Swedish <laughs> wars, Polish-Lithuanian gazes, eastward, civilizing missions, westward and eastward. Outside of this imagined great power empire of Peter I, also known as Peter the Great. Obviously, there is a very important history of the Cossacks in Ukraine, as well as the different topographical regions. There's 95 maps in the book in all sorts of different languages going up to the present. Kravtsev died in 1975. And as I said, the maps were donated to Harvard to the Pusey Library after 2004. And in part because the family was actually afraid of what might happen in Ukraine if there was something like another war or invasion or an attempt to destroy Ukrainian independence. And, and of course, they were very foresighted and write about that. Later, I wrote other books, just very briefly, Mapping Europe's Borderlands. In Mapping Europe's Borderlands, I featured the history of, of the mapping of Ukraine, the mapping of Poland, a really seminal moment, actually, for the creation of, of modern Ukraine and its territorial integrity. It was really with the closure of the Imperial Russian Geographical Society's branch in Kiev in 1876. There were several attempts to eliminate the Ukrainian language in different decrees in 1863 and 1876. And through the 1880s and 1890s, there was some very strong interest by Ukrainians in Galicia, Halicina, especially in using Habsburg sources. So Austro-Hungarian maps of nationality and ethnicity, census maps from the 1850s forward. There were some very significant Ukrainian graphic artists, uh, Stefan Vilichko, who drew some of these uh, maps, which became the first maps in the modern sense of Ukraine in Ukrainian. I cover this really long history from the 1640s and 1650s all the way up through the 1930s and, and then like into the present for understanding 
the current importance of Ukrainian maps and history and revolutionary times. When you are here in Ukraine now, you feel the power of the map in the original language of the country, uh, because the part of the information warfare is happening in this imaginary layer where the Kremlin is trying to push their spelling and their pronunciation of the Ukrainian original names. And it's an ongoing struggle. And even Google Translation will still have and push on you the spelling in the old Russian version. I'm constantly aware of the differences in Ukrainian historical regions. Let's take Zaporozhia, Zaporizhia. I use the Ukrainian spelling, Kiev, not Kiev. But I'm also very much a historian. And as a historian, I know the multi-ethnic history of places like Odessa, the importance of Odessa to Ukrainian Jewish history and Ukrainian Jewish historiography, or the history of Halichina, the Königreich Galitsin und Lodomerian, as it was called by the Habsburgs and in Austria, Austria-Hungary. I do love the fact that there are maps that do not reduce to geopolitics and nationality. The Kremlin, obviously, and have written about this, has been extraordinarily reductive, and and maps are violent, actually, in the way that borders are redrawn and redrawn through violence. In the claims that the Kremlin has made to Donetsk and Luhansk, and in addition, drawing these maps that appear regularly on Russian media where they're laying claim to Baltic states or based on some map that Putin has selected in the 17th century or 18th century, I think it's the job of historians and public intellectuals to offer constant correctives and to complicate the problems such that we have to state quite clearly that Putin is not a historian and that he's abusing history and geography for a specific violent purpose during Russia's aggressive war. And it's a genocidal war, it should be stated, against Ukraine. I'm currently in Kherson, and it's very hard to find our way around because the GPS is lagging behind. And also a lot of streets change their names, and they're still undergoing the change currently. I know that you recently have visited Ukraine as well. I wonder if you have the same experience and more of a general nature question. Where did you go? What did you see? And what were your impressions? I spent some time in Odessa and Lviv. I'm walking around Odessa is is just like a sort of great psychogeographical experience for me. One of the things that really broke my heart was to see the um, missile attacks on churches and historical buildings. Obviously, uh, Odessa is, is a UNESCO heritage city, and these atrocities need to be detailed and cataloged in addition to the other war crimes, the attacks on hospitals and in kindergartens and churches and schools and universities. To see this in in Odessa was really terrifying for me. Then I uh, stayed in Lviv and was very close to the missile attacks, some of which hit buildings that are owned by Ukrainian Catholic University. You know, my impressions of of Lviv are through the the alarms and, and obviously through all the concerns of the population now that Lviv is not a safe place. I did hear the missile attacks that ultimately hit the university buildings and some civilian buildings. 
at 2.48 a.m. and 3.12 or 3.13 a.m. I remember this. And, you know, as I said, from a distance here in Texas and in the U.S. or wherever I might be traveling, I'm trying really hard just to make sure the war crimes and other such atrocities are, are cataloged. So ultimately, the perpetrators will be prosecuted for their crimes. What do you think about the involvement of academia in the context of the Russian invasion in Ukraine. Do you believe that your colleagues uh, have the sufficient recognition of the colonial aspect of this war? Uh, there is another important aspect to it uh, regarding Western academics teaching Russian literature, history, culture. Uh, what is your stance? I work at a university and North American academe is, is obviously very different from French, German, <laughs> Japanese, Cuban, Venezuelan academe. So my, my first point is just to say we should prioritize Ukrainian and Ukrainian studies and the Ukrainian language. Obviously, this extends to the hiring of more faculty permanently, not just as adjuncts or in a precarious state, but the creation of, of positions for Ukrainian scholars. And, and this is something I advocate for in Ukrainian scholar networks. My second answer to this is just to say I'm a multilingual and multi-ethnic scholar. So languages like Yiddish are as important to me as, as Slavic languages, Czech, Polish, Bulgarian, Serbian, Croatian, Bosnian, Macedonian. I just think that this is the Ukrainian moment. And as the counteroffensive continues, hopefully successfully through 2023 and 2024, I'm just going to keep up the push on Twitter and in my other academic networks to, to have more Ukrainians, at, at least, you know, working jobs in, in academia. That, that's a very high priority for me as a non-ethnic Ukrainian. Thank you for your dedication and for a very interesting conversation, Stephen. On September 22nd, we have already spoken about Ukraine's strategic victory in the Black Sea on the Russian-Ukraine podcast. Following to these developments, I was lucky enough to obtain an interview with Dmitro Pletenchuk, the Speaker of the Naval Forces of the Armed Forces of Ukraine. Our interview was interrupted by a bombing in Kherson, with the internet going down, but luckily we were able to follow up and speak about the numbers and types of the Russian Navy ships in the Black Sea, the economic nature of the war, successful attacks on the Russian headquarters in Sevastopol, and much more. Here it is important to emphasize a few important points. You are only asking me about large amphibious ships. However, these are not the only Black Sea Fleet ships present since the beginning of the full-scale invasion. In total, the Black Sea Fleet had at least 50 warships and about approximately 20 armed boats. And that's not all. There are also at least the same number of auxiliary vessels. There are also various boats that are not armed, but they are also military. So Russians started the full-scale invasion with at least about 70 combat units only. In addition, there is also Marine Guard, the border service of the FSB of the Russian Federation. 
They also have up to 20 units of ships and boats. So, in fact, in total, the Russians had under 100 combat units in the Black Sea. You asked me about large amphibious ships. There were seven of them. Before the start of the invasion, they brought six more under the guise of training. Total of 13. Five of them are now out of service. Two are under repair. Most likely they were damaged when the large amphibious assault ship Saratov Project 775 was hit in the port of Berdyansk. More burned down. Saratov was drowned. It is a large amphibious ship. Alinihorsky Hornyak was damaged at sea. And another large amphibious ship was most likely Minsk, but we cannot confirm that it was this particular ship damaged by a missile strike. For the submarine, that's right. It's a missile carrier with six shafts, which usually carries four cruise missiles of the caliber type. And from the photos that are available on the Internet, it is clear that it is also damaged. Our part, we, the naval forces, confirmed that the large amphibious assault ship that was damaged during the fire attack cannot be restored. As for the submarine, this is the first time that Russia has lost a submarine in the course of hostilities in its history. Therefore, this is also a very important case. It was being serviced and, most likely, it is also not subject to restoration. This is all about the fleet. For the invasion in general, if you remember, the Russians planned to accomplish a naval landing on the coast of Odessa or Mykolaiv region on the southern coast of the mainland of Ukraine. At the beginning of a full-scale invasion, Russian landing ships could be seen from Odessa on the horizon. Now it is impossible, due primarily to the coastal missile artillery forces of the naval forces work. We restored a special type of troops in the Navy responsible for coastal protection. They are armed with missiles. Their missiles weapons are Neptune and the British Harpoon. And so we drove the Russians away from our coast to the distance of 100 nautical miles. They did not get it right away. First we sank the Moscow cruiser. They didn't get the hint. After that we drowned Vasil Bech. We had this zone of damage under our fire control. That was Mini Island and the Boyko Towers. Due to this, it became possible to land an amphibious assault and remove the equipment that the Russians kept there in order to receive intelligence information. I'm here with John Sweeney, veteran war correspondent, best-selling author of The Killer in the Kremlin book, among many other books and many other things. And he's in his Kiev studio and his hat, his signature orange hat, reads hashtag VPDFO! Exclamation mark. John, will you please comment on your hat? It's been made in uh, Ukraine, Serena. Uh, it's uh, a VPDFO stands for Vladimir Putin. Do f off. 
and it's his 71st birthday on Saturday, October the 7th. And here in Kiev, we're celebrating that in a way, and celebrating is the wrong word, uh, <laughs> by holding the Vladimir Putin Do F*** Off Festival. And essentially, there's bands and fashion and comedians, and there'll be some talking, not that much. And there will be a uh, some photographs by people like Paul Conroy and Soya Shu and um, a couple of other Ukraine photographers and Chris Okichoni. He's done a series about, of photographs from a stabilization hospital in like, this is like a MASH hospital or an English, English, a field hospital where the soldiers get to, Ukrainian soldiers get to have been injured in the battle, the battles around Bakhmut. And there is a serious problem. But the reason why I'm doing the festival, one is to have some fun, two is to raise money for Ukraine charities. But three is to remind people in the West that this war is continuing. It's not Ukraine's fault. Russia invaded Ukraine twice. And there is no good reason or purpose to this war. It's the war of, um, of a fascist power trying to smash its democratic neighbor to pieces. And we must stand with Ukraine. And far too many people in the West seem to be forgetting this. And the most appalling examples of it at the moment are coming from America. And Elon Musk, who's kind of goading Zelensky on Twitter. You look at Chris's, uh, Chris Okichoni's pictures from the stabilization unit, you'll see some of them. Are, there's one poor soldier who's almost Christ-like as he lies on the surgeon's table while the surgeons are going in to operate. There's another picture of some boy who's clearly shell-shocked. His face is... His look at the camera is so harrowing. Uh, uh, later um, um, today, or hope, uh, hopefully today, but tomorrow, I'll pull all these up and you can, your listeners to the podcast can see these pictures. But this is the reality of this war. It's brutal. It's cruel. It's utterly unnecessary. People are dying for no good reason. And all we're asked by the Ukrainians to do is to help them with money and to help them with guns and tanks and planes. And we're not doing enough. Stickened that we're not doing enough. We've got to stand by Ukraine. I think this kind of celebration is one that Putin is not going to like for his birthday. Yet there are many people, and I hear many questions about the appropriateness of celebrations of any sort in a country where a war is ongoing. I believe that this is a demonstration of Ukrainian spirit. What do you believe, John? You've done this festival before, and what do you think about the appropriateness of such a party? Uh, for example, um, yesterday, October the 1st, was the, um, was the birthday of my father, who was an engineer, a ship's engineer in the Merchant Navy, and he sailed a across to America and back, picking up oil for hurricanes and spitfires in the Battle of Atlantic. And when he got to Texas and when he got back to Manchester through the Ship Canal, of course he went to the pub and of course he had parties because his friends were, were, were fighting a fascist monster who spoke in German. Our Ukrainian friends are fighting a fascist monster who speaks in Russian. Why didn't my father's generation fight in the Second World War or the Ukrainian army well, soldiers fighting now, they're fighting for life, they're fighting for love, they're fighting for freedom. And we've forgotten in the West that democracy must be defended. Free speech does not come free. But if you fight for life, you're also entirely in entitled to go to a party and have fun. And, and my friend Van Demchenko, who um, is a Ukrainian soldier, he arrested me for being a Russian spy on day two. 
we sorted that out. But he's fighting right now. But he once said to me, listen, John, we're the Shire. You know, all we want to do is go dancing and drink beer, but we have to fight the monster. And I think it's perfectly proper to have a party. But in the party, we're not going to forget the war. There will be pictures on the wall from a, by some of them, for example, by Paul Conroy, who we made our film together, now called Under Deadly Skies, Ukraine's Eastern Front. And some of the images that Paul shot are, are wonderful and very, very striking and very bleak. There's an old couple who are who are walking down um, the kind of ruins of something like Sibiusk, I think, and... It's just, you know, this is a lovely old couple walking down the street, but the street has been smashed to pieces. And so, I mean, those pictures will be on the wall of this of this festival. So while people are dancing and drinking and having fun, everybody knows that there is a war on. War on. Everybody knows that Vladimir Putin will confine missiles at Kyiv at any moment. Hopefully Ukraine and their defence bats them out. But we don't forget the war here in Ukraine. You're in Kherson. You, you know, at any moment, you'll have to pause the podcast if, if incoming artillery sounds. So we know the reality of war, but people in the West have become too comfortable in forgetting it. It occurred to us that that severe sin that you're talking about, the ruined houses, is happening here in Kherson as we speak. There will be more images, and I think it's a great thing that you're putting together this party. For those who are in Ukraine and might want to attend or might want to donate for Ukrainian army, could you please give us some more information? How can people find it? So you just go to VPDFO, which stands for Vladimir Putin, do f- dot org. And uh, we're raising money for a basket of uh, Ukraine charities. We don't buy guns. That's the policy. All profits go to Ukraine charities. Some of those uh, for medicine, one is for the uh, stabilization clinic where Chris has taken his pictures. One is an animal shelter in Kharkiv. So there's lots of different things. All of it is the same purpose, is we're helping charities that support Ukraine, that help Ukraine survive this awful and brutal war. And at the same time, we're raising awareness. The other thing, there is a crowdfunder, VPDFO crowdfunder. You can donate money uh, there as well. If you donate money, you can watch the live stream for the festival. There'll be bands, there'll be music, there'll be a fashion show. You know, my advice to everybody out there is do not try and organize a festival in a city that might get nuked. <laughs> but at the same time, do it. Because this is kind of like, Kiev feels like what West Berlin felt like in 1961 when the Soviets put up the wall. It's a city fighting for its life, fighting for freedom, fighting for democracy. Please don't forget that. Because if Russia wins in Ukraine, then they're coming for us next. Last year, when I attended that wonderful festival, the next night, there was the first mass attack, a missile attack on Ukraine. So I hope that this year it will go without any hindrance of such sort and that we are heading uh, towards victory. And I would love to have you back on the podcast with more of a report on what is happening uh, from the front on the counteroffensive. But for now, good luck. I hope you raise a lot of money and awareness. Thank you so much, John. Thank you, Serena. Slava Ukraini. Heroim Slava. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.